if you have a Bible or a, an app that will let you look at Bible verses. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Genesis chapter 17. Uh, just real quickly, I do want to give a quick warning. We're going to be looking at a story that deals weirdly like a lot with human pre procreation and the organs with which procreation is made possible. So we're going to try and not be too terribly explicit because we understand that people watch this with kids in the room or in the next room or, you know, in, in the house where all of us just are most of the time. Um, but if you are, if you're feeling like you don't want to answer a bunch of questions about human reproduction, then maybe this is a good opportunity to print out that sheet that Tierney made and uh, let the kids go, go sit in another room or just catch up with us later with your headphones on. Whichever is totally up to you. I'm gonna, like I said, I'm gonna do my best to keep it family like clean and appropriate. But here's the thing. When you start going through the book of Genesis, it starts getting gross and weird. There's some really messed up stuff and there's some stuff that, uh, I realize like we tell kids from an early age, like my daughter, uh, we, like my daughter has a children's Bible with like these verses that you just saw. None of the verses we're looking at today are gonna be in that Bible, probably because that's a children's Bible and the stuff that we're looking at today is a little bit adult. So not unlike the last couple of weeks. It's, it's amazing, like this is like the third week in a row, I think that, that I've had to give a serious trigger warning about one thing or another. And that's, this is not gonna be the last time because when you start getting into Genesis, it gets gross and weird and very adult. So that's, that's what we're gonna be doing. So anyway, you've, you've been warned. And if you've chosen to take action to that effect, great. If not, then, you know, <laughs> Good luck with, uh, with the conversations that you're going to have to have later this afternoon. So anyway, we're going to look at Genesis 17 in just a second. So there's been a lot of talk up to this point. We've been in this series on, in Genesis for a while, start and stop as, as it has been. And there's been a lot of talk so far it, through the book of Genesis, particularly since Genesis chapter 12, dealing with Abraham being the father or the patriarch of a new tribe or a new people. And so the expectation is that Abram and his descendants will exist in the world specifically, if you look back at chapter 12, specifically for the purpose of being a blessing to the rest of the world. So the whole thing here is Abraham or Abram, you will be someone who has generation after generation after generation who comes after him. And the tribe will continue to expand and become more and more what it was always meant to be. And the core identity of this tribe is going to be, you will be known as a blessing to the rest of the world. That's the whole job of this new particular tribe that Abraham is supposed to be the patriarch or the, or the initiator, the father of. So that, that there's been a lot of talk about that so far from, from chapter 12 up until the very last chapter, which was deeply upsetting if you were here with us last week when we talked about Hagar. So now we've moved into chapter 7. Yeah, now, now we've moved into chapter 17, and we're going to be taking a look at kind of what are the implications of all this and how is all this supposed to play out in like kind of weirdly concrete ways. So in Genesis 17, verse 1, it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and blameless. <clears throat> then I will make a covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. 
for I have made you a father of many nations, which is, so now we get like the official name change from Abram to Abraham, which is really nice because cognitively I've had to like constantly remind myself that he's not Abraham yet, he's Abram. So now, now that we're in chapter 17, I can just call him Abraham and I can stop doing, like there's 5% of my brain I get back that I don't have to think about that anymore. So his name has been changed from Abram to Abraham. And then in verse six, God is still speaking and says, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as, a, as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. Then uh, we're going to we're gonna pause at verse nine and we're gonna jump down to verse 15. We're not, we're not skipping it, we're just gonna come back to it because uh, this what, what happens in one through eight and what happens uh, in verse 15 are kind of connected and verse nine is kind of a, a middle point and we'll, we'll just come back to it anyway. So then if you jump down to verse 15, it says, God also said to Abram or Abraham, see now I'm gonna have to like switch back in my mind. So now it says, so God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah, which is also easier to remember. I will bless her and surely, uh, and surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. So most of this that we've seen specifically in verses one through seven, most of this is not new information. If, you, if you've been following along, specifically in chapters 15, 16, 17, or 14, 15, 16, you know that like this has sort of been in the foreground or in the background at the very least for a while. And like the whole idea of Abraham will be the father of a people and that there will be a new tribe that comes after him. And that the, 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 the point of the tribe is to go and be a blessing to others, right? Like all of this is not new information. We've been, we've been hearing about some of this stuff since Genesis chapter 12. But there are two major exceptions to that. So in Genesis 17, we're given two key new, new pieces of information that kind of tell you like, why are we doubling back to this? Like, why are, why are we going back to the well in terms of the whole discussion about Abraham being a father to many? Like we've done this a couple of times. Well, there's two new pieces of information that we get in chapter 17 that kind of helps move the story along. And the first big new piece of information, which I've already mentioned, which is the name changes. Abram is now Abraham and Sarai is now Sarah. And in ancient documents, here's why that's important. In, in ancient documents, a name or a name change is meant to be the signal of a new beginning. It's a way of saying there's a new story that's starting here. Yeah, we've been with these characters so far. And yeah, some of the stuff that these characters have done, maybe not great, maybe not something we want to like put them up on a pedestal for. And so what we're gonna do to sort of signal to the rest of the world and quite frankly to the reader, what we're gonna do here is we're going to give these new, two new, two, we're going to give these two characters new names as a way of saying there is a fresh beginning to this story. And so far, Abram has not been what anybody would be, would accurately describe as a blessing to anybody but possibly himself. So the name change is probably necessary in order for us at least to get on board with whatever's supposed to happen next. Because like I said, we've seen Abram um, a couple of times now fully throw his wife under the bus and tell a king that she is his sister. And actually one of those stories hasn't actually happened yet in the text, but it's happened once. And then we have the whole situation with Hagar, which we looked at last week. And so there's been a lot of stuff in the text that we would look at and we would say, this is not, if we're, if we're talking about somebody being the beginning of a story and that story is about a, a people 
being a blessing to the rest of the world, so far it's not looking great. This is not the person you want to sort of push to the front and say, do more of this. Because so far Abram has done a lot of very selfish, very harmful, destructive kind of stuff, and tangentially so has Sarah. Specifically as you look at, again, the, the last story which we looked at about Hagar. So, um, so anyway, what we have here now is with the, with the name change, we have this signal of, okay, this is going to be a new beginning. What, whatever happens next is meant to be a shift. It's meant to be an, an entry point into a new story, or at the very least, a new chapter in the story. And by the way, just as an aside, and we're, we're going to continue to see this, the text is not suggesting that the name change means that no damage was done prior to this moment or that everything else is just like wiped away and we're not even going to think about it or talk about it anymore and it will leave no scars on anybody. We know that that's not true. Um, and so and the, the damage that was done is not magically erased by a new name or by, by someone signaling that there's a new story being told. There are long-term consequences and we continue to see kind of the ramifications of those long-term consequences. Like I said, this is like Abram or Abraham pretty soon is going to do the exact same thing he did in Egypt to Sarah. He's totally going to throw her under the bus again. Also, what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 21 is Sarah is still in like really serious, severe conflict with Hagar. And that's going to end up with Hagar and Ishmael being sent out basically to, to just survive on their own. So all the stuff that's happened beforehand, this is not the writer saying, okay, that stuff just didn't happen and we're just erasing it. This is just, just forgetting it and moving on. That's not what's going on. What's going on is... Basically, this is the narrator's way of telling us that the position of God in the story is to say, we're going to try this again. We're going to start something new. We're going we're gonna to engage with new names, with a new hope, and we're going to reach again for the possibility of blessing. So that is one of the things. And again, it doesn't mean that damage goes away. And again, there are, there's harm that Abraham has done that will last arguably for generations. If you look at what, what happens in the book of Exodus and the conflict between the descendants of Abraham and the people of Israel, you could make the argument that that starts way, way before um, when Abram and Sarai first enter into Egypt. Like this is an old conflict and it doesn't just go away just because somebody got a new name and somebody decided, well, we're just going to start over. But yeah, you still have to kind of live with the consequences of that. So that's, that's one thing. So the new information, the first piece of new information we get is these two characters now are given new names. Here's the second piece of new info. And this is where the like more adult kind of stuff kind of comes in. So now in chapter 17, verse 9. So right in the middle of the, of the two passages that we just looked at about the name changes, in verse 9, it says, Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, and your, you and your descendants... After, after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every, here it is, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner. Those who are not your, off, or those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or born with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So that's a new piece of information. If you're, if you're familiar at all with the text, this is not a new piece of information. But if you're just reading Genesis for the first time and you're like, what is, what's going on here? What's this all about? Oh, 
this is where that comes from. Okay, so this is, so the second new big piece of information introduced in Genesis chapter 17 is a, a covenant, specifically a covenant born out of the act of male circumcision. And I'm afraid I'm gonna have to say that word a lot today. The text has kind of put me in an awkward position. And, um, and you're gonna, by the end of this, you're gonna be like, Rob said circumcision a lot. Yeah, I did, because I'm, I'm the one who chose to do a series on the book of Genesis, and that's what I get for that. So um, anyway, so this is the third time in Genesis so far that we've received any sort, or that we've seen any sort of covenant being forged between God and human beings. And most recently, so like two chapters ago, most recently, a covenant was struck between Abram and God, and it was... Um, it was manifested in, in how Abraham was supposed to take some animals, cut the pieces of the animals in half, and then the Spirit of God was supposed to pass through those animals, whatever that means. So that happened a couple of chapters ago. So that was, that was a covenant that God did most of the work. And then prior to that, several chapters earlier, the first time we see the concept of a covenant, it comes in the story of Noah after the flood. And as, as sort of a sign of a new covenant, God places a rainbow in the sky, and the rainbow is the sign of the covenant. So this is the third time in Genesis we see a covenant being forged between humans and God. And now God wants this particular covenant to be signified with male circumcision, to which Abraham replies, how come Noah got a rainbow? Because, okay, it's not a great joke, I understand. You're, up, you're, you're rolling your eyes. It's a dad joke. It's for sure a dad joke. I was definitely, if, if we had been in person, you would have groaned. I missed the groaning, quite frankly. I missed the sound of you groaning at the bad dad jokes. I'm going to go ahead and say, though, it's not even my joke. I stole it. It's John Ortberg's joke. You can talk to John Ortberg about how dumb that joke is, but I did steal it, and I'll take, uh, I'll take the blame for that. Anyway, so back to whatever it is that we were talking about. Circumcision, that was it. So why circumcision? Of all the things, of all the ways you could create a new covenant, why this? Why not just like a handshake? Why couldn't we just sign on a piece of paper? I'm sure Abraham was like, I can cut up some more animals for you. That seemed to be fine. That worked. I can, I'm more than happy to do that if that's the other choice right now. But why this? Why is this the covenant? Because the whole thing is about Abraham being the father of a new tribe. And the idea is that this tribe is supposed to grow and expand and become more of a blessing to all other tribes and nations. And how do you add to your tribal numbers? If the whole thing is, is God saying to Abraham, you will be genetically, biologically, whatever word they would have used at the time, you will be the beginning of a new tribe and all the people who come from your line will also be part of your tribe. Well, how do you add, in, in the ancient world, and I mean, quite frankly, in most situations now, how do you add to your tribal numbers? By having children and passing along your name and your legacy and your story to the next generation and then to the generation after that. And if you're male, how do you go about doing that? I think you know how. So a man's sexual organ in the ancient Near East um, that, that is as vague as I can possibly be, guys. I'm sorry. But that particular organ was seen as a man's personal life force. It was meant to be, it, it was perceived to be the bearer of his, forgive me, his magical power to create new life. That was how it was sort of seen in the ancient world. 
By the way, have you ever noticed, as we've been reading these stories, and as if you just read through ancient texts about people having children or struggling to have children in the ancient world, not just in the Bible, but in other, I mean, I don't know how, I don't know how much time you spend reading ancient Near Eastern texts that aren't the Bible, but if you do, maybe you've noticed that in these other stories, and even in the Bible, from this time period, it always, if there's any sort of problem conceiving children, it always seems to be the woman's fault if someone is biologically unable to have kids. Why? Why, 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 do, why do the narrators of these stories always just assume that, that the guy isn't the problem in that particular situation? Well, it's because, patriarchy, quite frankly, but it's because the assumption was that men were the bearers of some sort of, again, like a magical life seed, or that, and that the man's job was to pass the life seed <laughs> to the woman, this is such a weird thing to be discussing just like into a camera by myself and with Caroline just right here. So, um, so the whole idea is that the man was able to like pass a life seed to the woman in order to create new life. And the assumption was that the metaphorical seed was fine, but that the soil, again, forgive me, this is 4,000 year old language, that the soil was the major variable in the equation. So obviously this is crazy ignorant and offensive and we've come a long way in 4,000 years, but that's how it was seen. So that's why the male reproductive organ is such a crucial thing because that is, that, that is like where the magical power of new life is thought to have come from. Um, anyway, circumcision was meant to symbolize how the people, specifically men, demonstrated their commitment to building a new tribe. It was a way of saying, like the new tribe that we're building is different. The new tribe that we are creating is something special and different and we are going to participate in it. And so this particular act was a way of saying, we are part of that story. It is a, you know, it's, it's a way of definitely saying like we, there is no turning back here, we are in. And it, it became a symbol that was way more than a medical procedure. It was a way of demonstrating that you were part of this particular story. In fact, the, the, the term uncircumcised would, would almost uh, quite, quite often become like shorthand for people who just like weren't dialed in to this particular story. If you're familiar with the story of David and Goliath in the book of 1 Samuel, there, there's a scene where there is a, an, an antagonistic force, a guy by the name of Goliath, who is antagonizing the people of Israel. And uh, the, this guy named David comes along and he doesn't like that Goliath is antagonizing the people. And what does he say? He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? So like the language of circumcised and uncircumcised, it's not like David had access to Goliath's medical records. What he's saying here is this person is working diametrically in opposition to what God is doing in the world. So that was sort of how this language kind of came about. And um, so fast forward from this moment where Abram or Abraham, see, I'm going to have to, again, retrain my brain to not do that. So fast forward 4,000 years to first century CE in the, the territory of Judea. The Jesus movement has been started within Jewish culture. Jesus is Jewish and so are his followers, which means they have inherited this story for 4,000 years parents and grandparents have been passing along this story of Abraham that we just told to their children and their grandchildren over and over and over again for 4,000 years. So now, 4,000 years later, first century Judean territory, we've arrived in this space and the Jesus movement is up and running and Jesus and his followers are Jewish, which means they probably have also been circumcised because they were born in the tradition of Abraham. 
So it is nobody's goal, by the way, at this time in the first century for the Jesus movement to replace Judaism. That wasn't the goal. It wasn't like we're going to create a whole new religion. The goal was for Christianity, for the, for the Jesus movement to exist inside of Judaism. It wasn't we're going we're gonna to replace this. It is we are going to enter into it and we are going to become part of the discussion. That was the original intent. It didn't quite work out that way, but that was how it was meant to, to be. So because the Judean territory is officially part of the Roman Empire, it is part of a larger network of other countries and territories that are also controlled by Rome. And because of this interconnectivity of the Roman Empire, and because the Roman Empire is ever expanding, and there's this, like this constant, they're constantly adding new networks of people groups that are just way, way beyond the Judean territory. The Jesus movement begins to expand to people who were not raised in the tradition of Abraham, which means they're probably in engaging for, for the first time with people who have not been circumcised because they weren't raised with the Abraham story. They have no context for all this, for, for these ancient stories. So they're entering in and they're, in and they're engaging these new groups of people. And one of the things that is true about most of these groups of people is they have, they have not been raised with the tradition of male circumcision. Now, the church's major first or the first major controversy within the church has been born. It won't be the last, for sure, but it's definitely the first. And the controversy is based on this particular question, which is, do non-Jewish people who join the Jesus movement need to be circumcised? Because we have this ancient story of Abraham, and it seems to be taken very seriously. We've been taking it seriously for thousands and thousands of years. So the question is, if the Jesus movement is officially a part of the Jewish, like the, the larger Jewish context, but we're engaging people who were not raised in Jewish tradition, when we introduce this thing and when people say, I would like to be a part of this, is one of the requirements circumcision? Should it be part of the deal? And the, and the whole controversy, this is, again, this is the first major controversy that would grip the early church. So lots of people would answer the question with, yes, absolutely. Jesus was Jewish. All of his original followers were Jewish. They were all presumably circumcised. So to throw away 4,000 years of tradition would have seemed unthinkable to people. Like, why would we stop? Why would we stop caring about this now? Like, it seems very serious in Genesis 17. And if you were among the the people who were raised with the posture of, well, I just read the Bible and I take it literally. I do everything it says. Then this is going to be a problem for you. If you want to do every single thing that the Bible tells you to do, but you were not raised, um, but, but now you're in, encountering people who were not raised with this tradition. And so now you have to sort of reconcile, like, can this person be part of this new Jesus movement without this particular surgical procedure? And, and again, to throw away 4,000 years of tradition, like that's a, that's a tall order for most people. Most people, um, like we've been doing church prior to, to this situation. We, we've, Collective Church has been around for six years, and every single Sunday, without fail almost, we've had donuts. And I'm gonna tell you right now, if we stopped showing up with donuts on Sunday morning, we would hear about it. That is a tradition. That is a tradition that people would um, have very strong feelings about, because how else are you supposed to get your kids to get in the car without an argument if you can't tell them, if we get to church on time, you can have a donut. Full respect for everybody who, for whom that procedure is part of your Sunday ritual. It's definitely part of ours. So here's the thing. 
That is a six-year-old tradition. And if we stop doing it, chaos. In fact, I'll give you another one. We, um, this year, we, every year, we do a, uh, a church anniversary dinner in February. And at the church anniversary dinner, every year, we do a trivia game. It's like a bar trivia kind of situation. And we did it for the first couple of years. And after like three or four years of doing it, I mentioned to somebody, like, maybe people are getting tired of this and we should stop doing it. You guys, the amount of rage, <laughs> the amount of how dare you, how dare you threaten to get rid of the bar trivia at the, at the anniversary dinner. I, I don't even know what, what, who would we be without the bar trivia? Like, that's a, that is a six-year-old tradition that we will probably have to die with. Like, we will, we will be doing this forever. As long, for as long as there's an anniversary dinner, we're gonna have to do the trivia because people are locked in to that tradition. It took no time at all for us to go from, this is an interesting idea, to we have to do this forever or there's gonna be chaos. Imagine having a tradition that's 4,000 years old and then telling somebody all of a sudden, maybe we don't need to do this anymore. People's heads would explode. This is unthinkable. So again, this is why this is such a big controversy because people are entering into new territories and asking, do these non-Jewish new converts, do they need to be circumcised? And again, you have these traditionalists who fully understandably are saying like, of course they have to be circumcised. Like they're, they're joining the same movement that we're all a part of. You, why would they not have to be circumcised? But then, there's another group that takes a more progressive stance and they argue that people shouldn't have to do anything to their bodies in order to be part of this movement. They believe that the message and the work of Jesus is so broad and so expansive that any type of physical requirements would just get in the way. And their posture, I mean, mostly vocalized by a guy named Paul, but there's a, there's a whole other like backup argument group with Paul on this. And the whole argument is, why would we do anything if people want to be part of this new Jesus movement? Why would we create new barriers? Why would, we, why would we make it harder for people to participate in this if they want to participate in this? If they want to be a blessing in the world, why would we make a 4,000-year-old tradition surgical procedure, why would we make that part of the package if like, that's the only thing standing between them and just being a blessing to the world along with us in the name of Jesus? So this is why there's a controversy, because both, in the eyes of lots of people, are making pretty reasonable arguments. So, um, in fact, the entire book of, if you uh, jump over to the book of Galatians, um, we did a whole series, by the way, a couple of summers ago on the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is a letter written by Paul to a, a church in a city called Galatia, which is part of the Roman Empire. And the whole message of this letter is responding to this controversy. Paul is angry because Paul has already been to Galatia and he's been preaching and telling them like, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is choose to be part of this new story. All you have to do is say like, yeah, I, I would like to be a blessing to other people. I would like to follow in the story of Jesus. And Paul has been saying like, you don't need to do any other thing. There are no barriers to entry in this particular story. The whole thing is like breaking wide open and you can be a part of it. So Paul's been in Galatia and he's provided this message and he leaves and right after him, this other group of people who are part of the more traditional set of people have come into Galatia and they've said, everything that Paul told you, not quite right because you actually do have to be circumcised. Turns out Paul was wrong about that. So they go in and they convince tons and tons of people in the city of Galatia 
to get circumcised after Paul has already told them you don't need to do that. So then Paul finds out about it and he writes a letter and he's not happy. And in the letter, the letter is what we now call the book of Galatians. And in the letter, he's trying to lay out all the things of like, you guys, you, you're missing it. You don't, I mean, if you want to be circumcised, if that's something you would like to do, that's fine. I'm not gonna stand in your way. But if you think that that's what you have to do in order to be a part of this, you don't, and I just want to set you free from that. So the whole book of Galatians is Paul like just ranting and railing against this one notion that there is a like a physical requirement to being part of this larger movement. So then, and so if you want to take uh, in, in Galatians chapter six, like right towards the end of the letter, because we could have read the whole letter, we won't, but we could have. In Galatians six verse fifteen, Paul writes this. He writes, "Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything." to which 4,000 years of tradition just went, like, what do you, don't mean anything. What have we been doing for thousands of years if they don't mean anything? So he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. So Paul is reframing what the whole story has been about the whole time. And again, this is deeply controversial. This is, this will create so much chaos and conflict in the first century church. It is, it's insane. So Paul is coming down really, really hard on the idea of you don't have to do this. There are no physical requirements to being part of this new movement, this new story about what Jesus is doing in the world. If you jump back a little bit, because Paul's going to answer the question earlier about like, okay, well, if the whole thing doesn't hinge on circumcision or uncircumcision, then what, what is it? Like, what are we doing here? So in Galatians chapter uh, 2, beginning in verse 6, Paul writes, As for those who are held in high esteem. Whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They, add no, they added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. The Gentiles is just another way of saying people who are not Jewish. Then it says, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, again, non-Jewish people, and, and they to the circumcised, to the Jewish people, to Jewish people. And then it says, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. So Paul says, okay, we all agreed. We're going to go to the non-Jewish people. We're going to go to the uncircumcised. And this group of people are going to go to the circumcised group of people. And it says, and before we left, they, they asked us to do one thing. And what was the one thing? It was not, make sure all the men in the tribe get circumcised. Whatever community, whatever community you go into, just make sure all the men get circumcised before you leave. That's not the one thing they asked. What's the one thing that they asked? To make sure we're taking care of the poor. What is the major point of the story? is the major point of the story to like solidify my position in the tribe and to do all of the physical requirements. No, What's, what, is the, what is the whole point of the story? The point of the story is to go and be a blessing to others. Who are the people in this, in this time who need some kind of blessing? It's the poor. It's the people who are suffering, who are starving, who are under the boot of the Roman Empire. And Paul says, look, when we went our separate ways, we told them we're going to go talk to a bunch of people who have not been circumcised. And the one thing they told us was, just make sure they take care of the poor, please. So the whole thing has never really been about circumcised or uncircumcised. 
In the time of Abraham, circumcision was the best way to signify tribal participation. It was thousands of years ago. It was the best they could do with what they knew in, in, in the time and place where they were. In the ancient Near East, it was the best they knew how to do. But times change. And in the first century, the challenge was to move beyond tradition just for tradition's sake and instead to reach for the original point of the whole thing. The original point of the whole thing was not do this minor surgery or else. The point was find whatever way you can to remind yourself that you are part of a story in which you are a blessing to others. Cir circumcision was meant to be a physical reminder. It was a symbol of a larger calling. It wasn't the point. It was never meant to be the final word or the final symbol. It was meant to be a way of saying, we're starting something new here and we need you to take this very, very seriously. And we need you to understand, we need the people who come after you to have a physical reminder of like the burden and the heaviness of the story that they're joining into. But now 4,000 years later, or now 6,000 years later, we are, we're, we're wrestling with new questions. And 4,000 years later, after Abraham, Paul is wrestling with new questions, which is, is the point really that we do the thing? Or is the point that we're a blessing to others? And Paul seems to come down on the, on the latter half of the story to say like, if, all the, if the whole point is just that we are doing tradition just because it's tradition, then we're not being a blessing to anybody. We're just patting ourselves on the back for doing traditional things. And, the, the, and there are lots of implications to this and we could spend lots of time on this. We won't, but we could. Um, there is, I, I would argue that there are two major implications here. One of the implications involves, there is a progressive dynamic and there is also, the other implication is that there is a conservative dynamic. And we're not using progressive and conservative in political terms, we're using it in terms of like how we engage with um, like morality and tradition. So, the so we'll look at what is the progressive dynamic and then what is the conservative dynamic. The, the progressive dynamic is this. The story seems to always be moving forward. This is what we mean when we talk about being progressive. Progressive means what is the next thing on the journey. So the tribe is always expanding. And we should always be looking for new ways to leave the door open and leave a seat open for whoever wanders into the room. It, it, it is a way of saying the whole thing isn't meant to be what it always was. The whole thing was meant to be a starting point for us to continue being a part of a story that is about blessing and serving other people and being, being a force for good in the world. And if we get like locked down in this one traditional element, then we lose the point of what we were trying to get to all along. There is a progressive dynamic to this. The whole thing is always moving forward. The, it is, we are always being challenged with new questions of in what ways can we make the story bigger? In what ways can we expand what's going on in this particular story? How can we be more inclusive? There are um, some, some organizations that are, that are doing truly holy, sacred work right now. In fact, um, there, there, were, there was a woman who visited our church uh, a few months ago, back when we were doing in-person services, and the woman who, who visited our church was one of the founders of an organization called Free Mom Hugs. And if you're familiar with Free Mom Hugs, this is a group of moms, basically parents, whatever, who have basically made it their mission to go into spaces where there are people who identify as LGBTQ and to say to them, we are, we are here to, to show you love because we understand that lots and lots of people have failed to do that for you. And so they go to um, like pride parades and other events and they basically just set up with t-shirts and, and banners and say like, if, if it's been a while, 
since anybody's mom hugged you. Oh, here, here's a free mom hug. So why is that so important? By the way, I, I do want to say we missed Pride Month because of all the other stuff that was going on. I apologize to our LGBTQ siblings for failing to honor that specifically in a timely manner in this space. That was a failure on my, my part due to everything else that I was just too distracted with to, um, to notice. So that's my fault and I, I apologize. So to, to our LGBTQ plus uh, siblings who are part of, of our community, uh, I, I apologize and please know that you are loved and this is just as much your community as it is anybody else's and my failure to acknowledge Pride Month um, is what was an oversight and I do apologize. So that said, a group of people who did not fail to do that were the people who started Free Mom Hugs. And what Free Mom Hugs is an organization meant to do is they are, they, they exist as a way of telling a group of people who have historically been told by churches and church leaders and a lot of times family members and close friends, you are not welcome in this story because you, you don't fit the pre, um, the preset notion of ideas, the preset parameters of what we do and do not accept. And so, um, and so for a long time, the church, specifically in, in the U.S., but um, ha has been not just failing people, but hurting people for this reason. And it all sort of comes down to like, well, we have this tradition and the tradition says this, and we've never done it this way before. And our tradition has always told us that this is the way we should do it. And we're going to be really aggressive and uh, really hostile in a lot of situations to people who don't fit the traditional like, view of how we think things should be. And um, again, American Christians have dropped the ball so hard that free mom hugs and other groups like mama bears are necessary because people who are gay or trans or identify somewhere on the continuum of that, like anytime they engage any person who represents any community of faith, they fully expect to be judged and excluded. And that's a problem because there's this tradition that they were handed and, and that group was handed from, by another group that said like, this is not okay and we don't accept this. And, and so because of that, people have been engaged with a lot of hostility and a lot of aggression and, and been hurt deeply because of this. What's going on here? Well, somebody was handed a tradition and then that group of people was handed a tradition and now that tradition is causing pain and it's causing people to feel on the outside and what, again, what groups like Free Mom Hugs and Mama Bears and what, what we're trying to do when, we're, when, when I'm not dropping the ball is we are trying to, to remind people that the whole thing is getting bigger and that you are welcome, that this is a space for you just as much as it is for anybody else. You are loved. You are seen. You are, you are, you are loved exactly as you are. And so... The, the, and this is, this is the problem with the posture of fundamentalism as a whole, because it's always looking for a way to determine who's out or who's less worthy or who's other. And um, in, the, in the story of the scriptures from Abraham to Jesus to Paul is about how to resist the urge to build walls and instead invite more people into the story and to engage and welcome people in all sorts of new ways that maybe we didn't before. The point is that, well, this is how it is, and so now it's locked in. What do we see Paul doing with the story of Abraham? Paul is saying like, no, we, we've set these parameters and the parameters don't work anymore. And so now there are people who want to be a part of this and the thing that they need to be told is not, no, there are these barriers to entry. The thing that they need to be told is there's room for you. There's always been room for you. You are welcome here. You are loved exactly as you are. And there aren't, like, you don't have to jump through my hoops in order to be loved and in order to be accepted here. So 
one of the guiding values of our church has been how can we be more inclusive? How can we create safe and healthy space for people who feel disenfranchised and excluded? That, that, is, that is the question that we are always wrestling with as a church. Why? Because when we see how Paul deals with the question of circumcision, it's, it's not a, well, this has always been the tradition, so this is what we do. It's, no, 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 the whole thing is moving forward. The whole thing is expanding. The whole, like, it's not my job to be the, the gatekeeper. It's my job to leave a seat open for whoever needs it. So that is the progressive dynamic to the thing that, that we see happening here. However, there is also a conservative dynamic because even though the, the parameters and the um, sort so, like what, what it means to be a part of the whole thing begins to shift and expand and move forward, the thing at its root the, like, like I said, in, when I, and when I say conservative, what I mean is like there, there is a guiding principle that's always sort of been there at its heart. And the conservative um, dynamic here is the calling has always been the same. The calling itself has never changed. The calling has always been, go, be a blessing. The calling was to be a blessing in Genesis 12. The calling here, when Paul talks about, okay, we divided up the labor, and the one thing we were told is, just make sure people are serving the poor. What's he saying? Yeah, the the parameters and the, and the restrictions, that kind of thing is starting to sort of change. But the one thing that doesn't change is what are we supposed to be doing in the world? Well, we're supposed to be showing love. We're supposed to be offering grace and peace to other people. We're supposed to be a blessing, no matter what era it is, no matter what we do and don't ask people to do as a part of this. The whole thing has always been, yeah, but at, at its core, the, the whole story is be a blessing. This is, this is, this is a potential problem with Fourth of July, and I realize like we're still, like like it's it seems like a weird moment to critique the Fourth of July since it's like barely even over yet. But th this is this is a, one of the, the potential problems with a lot of Fourth of July stuff, which is it can easily become a celebration of nationalism at the expense of everybody else. It is we we're America, and everybody else can take a back seat to what we want in the world. And, but the calling. For, for those of us who are part of the Jesus movement, the calling has never been to like pick a tribe at the expense of all the other tribes. The calling has always been to be a blessing. And, and the calling has never been to be bigger or stronger or more proud or have like the, the most guns or the loudest explosions or whatever. The calling has always been go and be a blessing to others. How can we serve the people who are the most vulnerable? in our midst. That's always been the calling. The call, that's what, that was the calling 6,000 years ago with Abram. It was the calling 2,000 years ago with Paul. It's the calling now. There is, at its core, there is a root that does not change. And it is, what does it mean to be a blessing? There's a progressive dynamic, and the progressive dynamic is how can we be more inclusive? There's a conservative dynamic, which is how can we retain this central point, which is be a blessing, no matter where you are, no matter who you're engaging. Always, the calling is be a blessing. So who, who is in need right now of grace and love and generosity and validation? Who, do you, who in your life do you know who needs to be told you are seen and you are loved exactly as you are? And all these requirements and all these things that people have heaped on top of you, it's not helping. And it's actually, if it's hurting you, then you don't have to do that. By the way, Paul doesn't have a problem with circumcision as a practice. He even mentions like that he's been circumcised and that he comes from a long tradition of that. He's not offended by continuing the tradition. He's offended when people say that you can't be a part of this Jesus story unless you participate in the tradition. So the problem isn't the tradition. The problem is, is the tradition getting in the way? 
I, I've known, there have been several people who have come to our church and one of, the, one of the questions they ask is, I was at a church before and I wanted to join that church and the church that I wanted to join told me I couldn't join because I needed to be baptized in the way that they baptize people. What's going on there? Well, just, that's just new circumcision. That's, just, that's, that's a new tradition that we've added to the story because in the world of Paul, there are no barriers. There are, there are no things that you have to do before you can be part of like the tribe or whatever. The, the requirement here is not do these things, like do all these outward symbols so that we all know that you're a part of this. The, the point is, are you, are you a blessing to others? What are you doing to enhance and give life to other people? So what does it mean for you to show grace and peace and love and validation and generosity to somebody else? Because that's the whole point. If you've been bogged down in tradition, if you've been made to feel less or small or unwanted because of somebody else's traditional baggage that they're trying to hang, like to hand you or to like force you to carry for them, you don't have to live like that. You are loved and you are validated, you are accepted, you are exactly as you are, and that is beautiful. So you don't have to do anything in order to be loved by God. You are invited to be a part of a story that invites you to be a part of to be a blessing to others. That's what you're invited to do. So if you've been handed a bunch of baggage, you have my permission. You have Paul's permission to set that down and to let it go. And if one of the things that we're wrestling with now is what does it mean for me to be a blessing to somebody else? That's a noble question. That's an important question. And may we continue even now, even in the midst of all the things that are going on. What does it mean for me to be a blessing to others? Is it, um, I was thinking about this this week. There, there, I've probably heard, I couldn't even tell you the number of times I've heard stories of people who work in retail or food and like a, a person, because we, we're in Tarrant County and there's a mask requirement and people will come in with no mask and they'll be told, like, you know, there's a requirement here, you have to wear a mask and they will go absolutely bananas and they will yell at the person. And there was a story about a lady who spit on the counter at a 7-Eleven because she wanted to buy beer and the, the clerk would not sell her the beer because it's store policy that people have to wear a mask. And so she threw an absolute temper tantrum. And is, like, I'm, I'm not saying like she's like in there claiming the same story that we're talking about, but is that what it means to be a blessing? Because when we're asking people to wear masks, what we're saying is, because, because the question of, of wearing the mask is like, who does it help? And the people who say, I don't want to wear a mask, it is like the, the counter argument to the mask is, well, it doesn't help me from getting the virus, right? The whole thing is like, I'm not, well, it's not going to keep me from catching it, so why should I wear the, the, the mask? Well, because the point is not for the mask to protect, when you wear the mask, it doesn't protect you. It protects you from breathing on other people and giving them potentially a harmful, deadly virus. So I wear a mask not because it protects me, but because it protects somebody else. And hopefully other people are wearing a mask because they would like to do the same courtesy for me. See, so what we're talking about here is an act that is inherently for the benefit of other people. So when we talk about being a blessing to other people, sometimes being a blessing to somebody else right now in this moment means putting a mask on your face when you walk into public. So sometimes it means asking somebody else who maybe has recently lost their job, is there anything we can do to support you? Maybe right now to be a blessing to somebody else is to offer some sort of way for someone's um, 
for, for someone to, to have, have a moment of peace in the midst of what has been the most stressful, chaotic year of most of our lives. What does it mean to be a blessing to others? Sometimes it just means wearing a mask, and sometimes it means getting more creative than that. But that's the calling. Nobody's interested in, have you done these physical requirements or not? Have you jumped through all the hoops? That's not what Paul's interested in. The calling here is not, have you done all the physical requirements? The, the question is, the calling is, are you, what is, are you being a blessing to others? Are you asking questions about, what does it mean for me to be a blessing to somebody who isn't me? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this reminder and this invitation to be a blessing to those who have been burdened, who have been weighed down with expectations and heavy, cumbersome, traditional um, practices. And they've been told you aren't worthy of being part of something because you haven't done these things. May we set those expectations down. May we, may we allow ourselves to be set free from those toxic messages. Instead, may we hear a voice telling us that we are loved and we are accepted exactly as we are. And as we accept that message about ourselves, may we then be challenged to the new question, which is, what does it mean right now in this moment for me to be a blessing to somebody else? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.